My name is Kim Mutcherson. I am the co-dean of Rutgers Law School on the Camden campus, and this is The Power of Attorney. So on this particular day, I'm lucky enough to actually have three people on the podcast with me to talk about their origin stories and then talk about um, some really great work that they uh, did here in the state of New Jersey. Um, and so the three folks I'm talking to are uh, Kate Doyle, who will be graduating from the law school this spring. So early congratulations um, on that, Kate. Um, Paul Prendergast, who is a 2019 graduate of the law school. Thank you so much for being here, Paul. Um, and then Ruth Ann Robbins, who is also a graduate of the law school. Um, am I allowed to say the year, Ruth Ann? You are. Okay, uh, a 1991 graduate um, of the law school. So we're excited to have all of them here um, and to talk about their journeys and to talk about um, some of the amazing things that they've been able to do here in New Jersey. Um, so I want to start the podcast the way I always start the podcast, because it's always fun for me to hear these stories, which is um, to ask folks their origin story. Right? You had all of these things that you could have done with your life. You're all smart people, obviously. Um, and you decided that law school and being a lawyer was the direction that you wanted to go in. Um, so actually, let me start. Um, let me start with you, Ruth Ann, and then we'll work our way uh, work our way backwards. So, why law? Um, I was actually on track to get a PhD in biology. I was a biology major in college, um, and then sometime around my junior year, I realized I actually really wanted to work with people a bit more than with the science. Um, and I was one credit shy of a history major, and I had lawyers in my life um, that I really liked speaking with, so they persuaded me that if I was changing course to head to law school, so that is what I did. And, and what did you imagine that you were going to do with your law degree? So I really actually thought I was going to do small law and um, be you know, the general practitioner in the small town. Um, I ended up going to a clerkship and then doing big law for a while, but I really always you know, wanted to fulfill that desire to work with people. Um, and I ended up in academe because when I was in law school, I was a teaching assistant and I really enjoyed it. I was given the opportunity to do some teaching while I was in practice and it was what I really wanted to do. So I'm doing what I actually really wanted to do. Awesome. Sometimes life is good, right? Yep. Um, all right, Paul, what about you? What's your origin story? How'd you end up in law? Um, so in undergrad, I was a political science major, and I interned at a few political offices. So I kind of knew I wanted to go into a legislative work. Uh, but then after graduating, I had a tough time finding a job. And I had taken the LSAT because my sister and brother-in-law both went through law school. Um, and I, I did well on that. So I figured I'll go to law school, maybe learn a few things. <laughs> and then it'll probably be easier to get a job after that. Yep. Was it? I think so. I think it definitely helped. Um, it's easier understanding legislation and everything now with that with that background. Absolutely. And Kate, what about you? Why law school? So law school was not something that I'd ever anticipated for myself in a million years. I actually went to undergrad uh, with a plan to pursue ultimately a PhD in children's literature. Um, and wow. as you can uh, imagine, there aren't a ton of uh, uh, career opportunities for folks with um, doctorates in children's literature. Um, so uh, shortly after graduating with my um, undergrad, 
I was like, oh, oh my God, what can I do with this um, in the middle of, you know, the country's biggest recession? Um, I became a technical writer um, and did that for about a year and was like, wow, this is the like loneliest, most isolated job ever um, and really missed interacting with humans and just kind of accidentally got into like HR and administrative kind of work. And that led me to Planned Parenthood um, working at an affiliate in Virginia, which is where I'm from. Um, and while I really liked working for Planned Parenthood, um, I didn't feel like I was directly contributing to the mission in that role. Um, law was something that I'd always kind of passively been interested in, um, but didn't realize at that point in my life that you could be a lawyer and not directly represent clients. I just felt like lawyering meant like you were in court uh, with a, a client beside you. Um, and, you know, the tides kind of shifted when I realized, oh my gosh, you can be a lawyer who works on policy. And at that point I was like, I need to do law school and that's how I can work on reproductive justice. So here I am. Awesome. Well, it's been lovely to have you here. So thank you for choosing law school. Um, so one of the things that I like is that um, we have three graduates of our law school here, all of whom are sort well, Kate's headed in a particular direction. Um, but we've got somebody who's in the legislature as a legislative aide. So that's Paul, um, who's working for um, Assemblymember Moriarty. Um, we've got um, Professor Robbins, um, who's been here at the law school and teaching in our clinics and then in our legal research and writing program. Um, for 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 quite some time. Um, and then uh, we have Kate, who um, is going to graduate into a fellowship with If, When, How, um, doing reproductive justice work. So it's a really nice um, display of the diversity of ways that, that people can use um, a law degree, which is great. Um, but obviously, one of the main ways that you can use a law degree um, is to advocate and to create policy and to create law. Um, and that's what we're here to, to talk about today. So um, to, to get into that conversation, I actually want to start um, with you, Ruthann, um, to talk about the course that you created here at the law school to give students an opportunity um, to really think about, right, how do you how do you build legislation? What does that look like? What's the process? Um, and, and what's behind it. So can you give the, the history of the course a little bit and then we'll sort of segue into where, where we ended up? Um, I will, and what's fun about it is um, Paul's brother-in-law was um, a reason why the course exists, a main reason why the course exists. So in 2013, I had a, a trio of students in the Advanced Domestic Violence Clinic who really wanted to, who really had been very active in the law school in a variety of ways during a time of great change in the law school. Um, and they really wanted to finish law school doing something big. And they found a, a project for themselves, um, writing an amicus brief um, on the issue of um, the right to counsel and domestic violence restraining order hearings, which did not fare successfully, but, um, but they wrote a, a really wonderful brief and I ended up writing an article about it. And a few years later, another trio of students who wanted to do something big came to me, they read the article and they came to me and said, can we try this with the legislature? And so we decided we would approach the legislature. And this went on for a number of years in a directed practicum kind of a way until you in your role at that time of academic dean told me no more of this. You will create a full-fledged course. Um, I'm sorry, and Paul, it was your brother-in-law who's on the original amicus brief. Um, and so I created the full-fledged course, which Paul was an original member of. And um, the purpose of the course is to look at how the New Jersey legislature works and to look at how um, 
we can intersect with it as a law school with our research and writing expertise and take on certain issues um, and act as kind of an information and also um, advisory on certain issues that the legislature can't necessarily research, but we at the law school have law students who can do all kinds of wonderful work. Um, and that's where we are. And that's why this project existed. So let me ask you two follow-up questions. So yeah. one, um, for folks who um, may be sort of new to legal talk, um, yeah. tell them what an amicus brief is. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> and then the second the second thing that I would love to talk to you about a little bit more um, is the way in which the course is sort of student-directed, which I think yeah. actually makes it even more powerful. Um, so one, the amicus brief, and then two, um, you know, basically how you, how you choose what, you're, what you all are gonna work on in the course. So an amicus brief is different than when um, the people who are actually litigating write briefs. So an amicus brief is when an organization steps in and says, we have an interest in this topic and we can provide um, research and um, policy-based arguments that you might not have thought about. And um, in the particular case, we ended up being amicus because there was somebody else doing the, um, the representation of the actual party at interest. So, um, and it, it's pretty novel for law students, I think, at least at our law school to do amicus brief. So it was pretty exciting for them. Um, and so as for the course, um, I've tried to select issues that I would call law student sized. So they, these are issues that no other major organization is taking up, not because they're not interested, but because they've got bigger fish to fry, I mean, or very large issues. And, and so I started out the course looking for issues that I thought law students could really be a benefit to the legislature with their research skills and um, with their writing skills. And it's a whole different set of writing skills that the students are learning in this class, right? So in legal research and writing their first year, they're really working on litigation based, you know, how you go to court, how you represent a client. Here, they're really working on how to write documents for legislators who may or may not have gone to law school. And so it's gotta be much shorter. It's gotta be much tighter. It's gotta have like great visuals. Um, and it's gotta get the point across in, I think, you know, one page front and back. Yeah, I think I think one of the things, um, and this is sort of you know the fault of of television and, and movies in some ways, mm -hmm. right? That that the um, the way that think people think about lawyers can be can have a lot of blinders, right? There's like a particular way. There's only, there's one thing, and um, basically that lawyers do, which is like yell at each other in conference rooms and then yell at judges, right? Um, and then tell their clients what to do or, or do exactly what their clients tell them to do, no matter how awful it might be. Um, and so one of the things that I think is really powerful about this course is that it is a reminder that the skills that you need as a lawyer are really broad, right? Um, and that it's not just the sort of very narrow field, but um, yeah, um, if, if we're doing our job right, you're going to graduate with a whole set um, of skills that, that hopefully are going to be useful to you out in the world. Absolutely. And um, some of the projects other students have worked on included like an info, an informational trifold on certain other laws that we want college students to know about, but aren't necessarily being broadcasted. Um, that's what another team in Paul's year worked on. But I mean, so Paul, he can talk about it, obviously, but I was making them use um, infographic software and like really thinking visually, which is not what a lot of the other law school classes really emphasize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. Um, let me do this, actually. Let me let me jump to Paul for a second um, and just talk a little bit about your experience in law school when you were in the course, um, Paul, and then I'll bring you back in to talk about um, the work that you've done now um, in the legislature. So um, my, my guess is that this, this class felt really different from other classes that you took um, in the law school, and I'm curious about what was appealing to you about the idea of doing this kind of work. Sure. So, um, yeah, so the whole 
my whole time in law school, I kind of expected to go back towards legislation. So this was kind of a, a nice change of pace for me to focus specifically on policy drafting and legislative analysis. Um, and so my class, we were kind of the first with this project. So we kind of spent time surveying the landscape nationally and how different states were tackling it. Um, and then we'd kind of see what we thought was best and try to develop a recommendation. And so, yeah, we had um, some infographics we developed showing how things have developed throughout the country and how many states have adopted policies to address the issue. Um, and around the time I graduated, we were kind of preparing to bring that to different legislators and see if we can get something introduced. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me jump to Kate. Um, so Kate, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, help lay a foundation for um, the particular um, topic that then became a bill that then became um, an actual piece of legislation um, here in New Jersey, right? So what, what was the practice um, that we were concerned with um, that, that led to all of this work? So I think some folks may have a, a bit of knowledge about this because um, this what the bill covered or covers, I'm sorry, because this has become the law of the land in New Jersey, it's been covered in a variety of news outlets. So if you've heard um, in TikTok or seen a news story about the practice of non-consensual invasive body exams or um, pelvic exams being performed on folks who are under anesthesia for a surgery, that's what this bill prohibits. And um, I first learned about this practice when I was working at a Planned Parenthood affiliate. I remember back in 2016, uh, roughly, I was just like scrolling through Facebook and I saw a friend post an article from Slate on, you know, my timeline. And I was like, what? You know, just the title of the article caught my attention. I clicked on it and I read it and my mind was blown. Like, oh my gosh, how is this, how is this a thing? And I remember asking one of the abortion providers at work the next day, like, oh my gosh, have you ever heard of this? Like, wow. And this is some, this abortion provider in particular uh, had uh, gone to medical school in North Carolina. And she was like, yeah, this is, this is a thing. This is common practice. And I remember like going home that night and like looking up the laws in Virginia. And I was like, well, whew, thank goodness this does, this does not happen here in Virginia. And this has been prohibited here since I think 2012. Um, and, you know, fast forward to when I was taking this class with Professor Robbins and on the first day of class, Professor Robbins laid out the um, bills that students my semester were um, able to kind of pick and choose from. And New Jersey had been considering banning this uh, practice of medical training. Um, so medical students learning how to perform um, invasive body exams uh, specifically pelvic exams, prostate exams, and breast exams on unconscious patients without their informed consent, banning that practice. And it had more or less been sitting on legislators' desks for, I don't know, um, Paul could tell you specifically, but for a very long time. And it had just not gone up for a vote. And um, so that was kind of the substance of the bill. So let me, let me, um, let me take a step back a little bit, because I think, um, you know, when people hear about this practice, there's a group of people who immediately, their response is, this is appalling, right? And why is this happening? And how has it been happening? And why hasn't anybody stopped it yet? But then I can imagine, right, the reason why it continued is because there has to be a group of people who were like, 
this is what you do in a teaching hospital, right? You teach people how to do particular things. And, um, you know, that's, that's all this is. It's just another exam and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt people. Um, and most people probably don't even know that it happened, um, to them. Right. So, you know, why, why should we be worried about it? If the outcome is ultimately that we get doctors who are, um, better at performing these particular kinds of exams. And I'll, and I'll leave that to anybody who wants to be responsive to it. But, um, I do think that it's, it's useful to sort of hear, what the other side of it is, right? To try to understand why this was a practice that went on for so long and still goes on um, in a number of jurisdictions. So Ruthann, do you wanna start? Sure, um, so the reactions that when I was floating this um, past people saying, do you know about this issue? What do you think about this issue? Um, was twofold. First was, that's terrible. These people, these doctors should go to jail. And I would explain, well, it's not really handled criminally. It's handled through um, medical ethics um, and professional responsibility. And then they would say, well, how do you even know it's happening? I don't believe it's happening. Can you prove that it's happening? Are there empirical studies? And that was really where we got stuck um, because there's really only one empirical study that's out there. Um, it's from the Philadelphia area, but it's it's pretty old. I mean, it's it's 15 to 20 years old, I think. This, you know, I think Kate and Paul can probably give me the exact year. But there was just the shock of how do we know it's happening and why should we pass a law if we're not convinced it's happening? And so you know, that became part of the issue of how can we possibly prove it? And in Paul's year, I remember one of the team members, I said, well, I've got friends in medical school. I'm going to message them right now and got back. Oh, yeah, no, it's happening. No, I will not come out and, and say that publicly. And that was what we were facing. And what was the what was the reluctance to to come out and say it publicly? So these students who are being um, required to perform these exams for the purposes of their medical school learning, um, think about the people who are requiring them to perform these exams. These are the, the residents and the doctors who are ultimately in control of these medical students' futures, right? So um, the implications of saying, no, I'm not going to perform this or otherwise reporting the, turning in the folks who are requiring you to perform these exams the fear of retaliation, what's going to happen to my future as a, um, you know, aspiring doctor, that is um, causing a lot of folks to, you know, just stay silent on the matter. Um, when I first inherited this project, I also reached out to a handful of folks that I know in medical school, and I either did not receive responses, or in one case, I did get someone to who said, yeah, I'll talk to you about this. And then the next day just kind of fell off the radar and I kept poking and said like, hey, you know, when can we schedule a phone call? When can we schedule a phone call? And ultimately got back to me and said, uh, you know what, Never mind." So I, I feel like this is, um, and folks have said, ultimately I'm uncomfortable um, talking about this because I fear for my future if I turn in the doctors and residents who are ordering me to learn this way. And it's and it's interesting because there there are you know multiple levels of power differential at play here, right? So one is between these medical students and the doctors um, and the residents, um, but one is also very much between the healthcare providers and the patients, right? Um, and so you have to kind of figure out how do you um, you know how do you break down that power differential so that you can actually get um, to action. So I wonder if if I can jump to you, Paul, because obviously you're in the the legislature. Um, 
and this bill had been floating around and here's this issue that you uh, had already started working on um, in law school. So can you walk a little bit through, and this this is also maybe a bit of a civics lesson, right? Which which students don't get enough of anymore um, in elementary school and, and high school. Um, so can you sort of walk through what that process looks like, right? When a legislator, legislator becomes interested in a particular topic, how do you go from here's this thing I heard about to here's a bill? I actually was in Assemblyman Moriarty's office when the bill was introduced. Um, that was my predecessor, Joe Miller, who's a current 2L at Rutgers Law School. So a constituent reached out about the issue and was like, this is very concerning, like we should do something to address this. And so then Joe kind of spoke with her and flushed out the issue. And then um, he would reach out to the Office of Legislative Services, which is a nonpartisan legislative research staff for the state of New Jersey. And they would help draft the bill with kind of Joe's input. Um, and then, so some of them already would introduce the bill. Um, Senator Madden, who were in the same legislative district, uh, the fourth legislative district. So I'm not sure if Joe spoke to his aide or it caught their attention or what exactly happened, but um, Senator Madden introduced it in the Senate. And so then it has to go through committee in each chamber. Um, unfortunately, in the assembly, it kind of got bogged down because there were doubts that this was happening in New Jersey. Um, so then Sarah Ballantyne, uh, another former Rutgers grad, was with Senator Madden's staff and they were able to get it moving um, through Senate committee. And eventually, kind of late in the game, we were able to get it through assembly committee and to the floor for a full vote. And so what what needed to happen in order to get because, you know, the trick with legislation always right is that you have to line up your votes. Right. Um, and so it sounds like one of the pieces of lining up the votes was, is it OK for me to call them whistleblowers, the medical students? Right. Um, was sure. Yeah, these medical students who are basically whistleblowers and who are willing to say, you know, this is a practice um, that is still going on. And so was that was that what sort of you know, broke broke the log jam so that the bill could actually move forward? Yeah, I think I think that, I definitely think so. Um, these medical students reached out to our office one day. It was like four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Um, and I saw a kind of unusual area code. Um, and they reached out and they said that like they've been asked to perform these exams without patient consent. And their supervisors tell them it's okay because the patient consented to them being in the room. But mm. that seems like an expansive view of consent, in my opinion. Um, and so we were able to tell the people who had reservations about the bill that like, hey, these students have contacted us, like it's happening. Um, they have concerns about their careers and their prospects if they come forward, but they are concerned and they need our help. Was there any pushback from from people in medical school, right? From the the doctors who were like, "This is how we this is how we train, and it's necessary for us to be able to train this way." Yeah. So the one medical student, um, he kind of started educating his classmates about the need for consent, and so he would tell them like, "Hey, make sure you get consent from the patient before." you do these kind of procedures. It seems kind of tricky to me though, because they have to anticipate they're going to be asked to do it and get consent beforehand. Um, but he would tell his classmates and they all kind of started getting consent from the patients. Um, but then there were a few doctors who said that you don't need to do that. Um, they've consented to you being there. Just kind of go ahead and do what you're asked to do. But yeah, they all kind of stuck to their ground and decided that consent was absolutely necessary. And they're always helpful to our office whenever we have any questions about the process because we're law students, not medical students. So that's kind of a area of ignorance for us but yeah they're definitely helpful that's good i'm glad i'm glad to hear that and i'm glad that there were um you know medical students who were sort of you know brave enough um to speak up and then also medical students who were willing to engage in a consent process um with with patients um um, before they before they performed any kinds any of these kinds of exams um so it went through the assembly um, got the votes that you needed there. Um, and then what about through the Senate? Did it move smoothly through the Senate as well? Yeah, it moved. Um, it passed both chambers um, in a full vote on the same day, kind of like the last session of the, the term. 
Um, yeah, but I believe it was unanimous in both chambers is just kind of getting through the holdups and getting it a vote. Yeah. Um, and then there was also, uh, they also heard testimony in the legislature, right? Kate, do you want to talk about um, the testimony and, and why it was useful to the, the legislature to hear from folks? Yeah, and Professor Robbins was um, a real joy to work with. Uh, she helped me tremendously in uh, preparing my testimony, so thank you. Um, both times. So the nature of my testimony changed. So initially, back before we kind of hit the log jam with the assembly, um, I was still more or less involved in the um, in the class when I testified before the, the Senate. And the nature of that in-person testimony was really just to provide some additional education, some context for why regardless of whether there was hard data about this happening in New Jersey, we should still consider this a, a likely issue here. Um, and I learned quite a bit uh, regarding, you know, how ill-prepared I was um, not having the bill in front of me. That was a rookie mistake. I will not do that again. Uh, and I got into a little bit of back and forth with one of the legislators uh, and, uh, and moving forward, I will never do that again. And I will have a way to gracefully see myself out of any sort of like um, tennis match, I guess. But I, I do think that it was valuable and that, um, you know, we were able to provide some education um, and the data that we were able to provide, we gathered that throughout the semester. And then the nature of the assembly testimony was some storytelling. And that was really personal and it wasn't something that I had ever really shared with anyone um, in my life, much less um, a public hearing, frankly, because I don't think that it's anyone's business, um, but I felt empowered to, to do it. One, because I had just finished reading um, Chanel Miller's Know My Name, which is an excellent book for anyone who hasn't read it, um, about turning um, your sexual assault into, um, I don't want to say force for good because that's not what it is, but um, how you can use that um, to bring good into the world. Um, and also, um, you know, I was thinking about abortion storytellers um, and what they um, use their stories for. And I, you know, brought that into my assembly um, testimony. So, yeah. Can I add something to that? So first, um, Kate did wonderful testimony both times. So she's selling herself short if she says that she made rookie mistakes. And so I'm sorry, Kate, but I'm going to have to brag on you a little bit. So in her Senate testimony, she sat there and argued that people are avoiding medical treatments because this whole unauthorized pelvic exam topic is out there in social media. And Kate did a count of how many TikTok videos there are and how many stories there are and how many views there are of these stories and was able to say that regardless of whether we can prove it's actually happening in New Jersey, people think it's happening in New Jersey. And that's enough to cause people to um, choose to avoid what might be necessary healthcare because they are afraid of being re-traumatized if they are a victim of sexual assault. And that I thought was really important to bring to the Senate. And I think the Senate thought that too. I mean, the assembly testimony that she gave, and just so everybody knows, she, um, Paul contacted us, I think December 30th to say this is going on January 3rd or January 4th. And so we were working over New Year's um, for her for Kate's testimony. 
Um, and it was very powerful. And what was fun was not fun probably for Kate, but she was asked to engage in some back and forth, which is what we train our law students to do when we're asking them to um, engage in what's called oral arguments in the first year. And so, I mean, Kate just sort of like snapped right too and was able to say, yeah, here's, I can answer your questions and was really very powerful with her work. One of the things that I, um, that I often say that I know um, that you also often say, Ruthann, um, um, is that the core part of what we do as lawyers is one, we work with words, right? Um, and two, we tell stories, right? Whatever, whatever we're doing, ultimately we're trying to put together a narrative and we're, and we're trying to put together a story. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how this course and how the experiences that students get to have um, in this course is sort of another level of thinking about that particular lawyering skill, um, which again is one of those things that I think that people don't always think about when they're like, you know, this is what lawyers do. And yet it's such a core part of what you do if you're good at being a lawyer. So I've written on this topic of storytelling and so I'm teaching it to my students. And um, we I make sure that the students, when they are working on bills that they understand fundamentally and can connect to it personally. So for example, if we're, they're doing work on domestic violence legislation, so you know we're working in domestic violence sexual assault area and I would call this particular thing in one of the sexual assault avenues, um, they've got to go down to the courthouse and experience what it looks like to see a restraining order hearing if they haven't already seen it and to understand like um, what it takes to prepare one of these, what it takes to go through one of these. And then they get to tell their stories as law students of, you know, if I'm really nervous to go to a doctor because maybe they're going to perform an invasive medical exam and I feel like I have the power of being a lawyer, what does an average person without legal training feel like? And it's the same for working on the domestic violence issues where the law students are saying, I kind of understand the area of law, but to go through one of these hearings without any knowledge of law is terrifying, um, which is, you know, one of the other projects is right to counsel. Um, so we're really like working through what is a story, what you, what image do you want to leave your audience with, you know, what do you want to describe? And so um, Kate in her testimony each time was really able to say like, I want you to like have a vision of people clicking on these TikToks and, and seeing the issue and knowing that it's not prohibited in your state. Is that what you want legislators? Or I'm a person, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Kate, who declined medical treatment because I was afraid of, of this issue happening. Is that what you want? Is women declining medical care because you're looking at one? Thank you for that. And that sort of brings me back to another, another piece of this that I want to talk about. I'm going to jump back to you, Kate. Um, because both of us obviously are deeply interested in reproductive justice. That's the work, you know, um, that you and I both do. Um, and I feel like there is this really important and interesting historical link to be drawn here. Um, you know, if you think about even sort of the history of gynecology in this country, you know, the sort of father of gynecology, Dr. Sims, is somebody who was doing unconsented experimentation on enslaved women, right? Um, and so there's this sort of through line, which is actually a really great podcast if you've never listened to it, through line on NPR. But there's this, you know, really interesting um, and maybe dangerous through line of where we started and kind of, you know, where we are. Um, and I wonder if you feel like, like a bill like this is another step towards getting us further away from that sort of um, sense of women's bodies as being kind of available right? Um, um, even without our consent in order to 
you know, further medicine or, or, or further science, um, which is sort of like a broad statement to make, but I'm curious sort of how you feel having now worked through this process and come to the end of it. Um, you know, are, are we in a better place and are there other, other things that we should be thinking about in the same context um, that could make medicine safer for lots of us? I love that question. Um, thank you. So when my colleagues and I were kind of thinking about kind of a theory of the case for this bill and how we were going to pitch our proposed amendments to legislators and how we wanted to kind of put a fire under people like, please, you know, get this up for a vote. Like, why is it just sitting on your desks? Uh, we had uh, this you know, uh, we called it everything but the kitchen sink draft running where we were just throwing all of our different theories at the case, um, you know, and for folks who are, you know, not really familiar uh, with what I mean when I say theory of the case, it's sort of the, uh, um, the thread that runs between, um, runs throughout all of the different arguments um, that you might, you know, throw into um, your overarching like legal Argument. So when, you, when you're arguing a case, you know, what runs the common element that runs through them. And one of the theories that we originally ran with, um, we're thinking about was, you know, this is part of the long running history of exploiting women's bodies, particularly poor women's bodies and um, women of color's bodies, because this is a, a teaching practice that's most likely to happen at teaching hospitals. And we were writing about um, Marion Sims. And so we had that in our everything but the kitchen sink draft. And then we had like the theory that we ultimately ended up landing on, like you're scaring folks from getting necessary medical care. We had a couple of other theories going on. Um, and ultimately what we decided on was, you know, we want and we need to go with the theory that's going to be most palatable to legislators. Um, you know, we don't want to feel like we're bashing doctors um, because that's that's not something that anyone's ever going to bite at. Um, if we're telling them like your doctors are bad uh, and we need to punish them. However, in my soul and I think you know other people's hearts and, and souls, we can see that connection, and we feel like we did do something to disrupt that chain of history here, you know, and if that practice of not requiring folks to ask for medical consent, if that wasn't required, if we didn't start here, how far was that permission or lack thereof, how far was that going to extend? You know, if you don't require it with your patients, do we allow it to not extend to like your dates or to like people in general? Um, and so I do think, you know, starting with just like the most basic, ask your patients for permission. We can begin to, you know, disrupt patterns of toxic masculinity. Um, and starting at a teaching hospital, we can disrupt the historic patterns of exploiting poor people's bodies, people of color's bodies. So more legislation, in this vein, it's a no-brainer for me. Um, yeah, it's a long answer. No, it was it was a it was a great answer. Um, yes, great so, answer. <laughs> so a couple of, uh, one thing that I realized is I th I don't think we've actually said what the law says. Um, so it might be useful <laughs> for us to be explicit um, about what the law says now um, here in New Jersey. And then 
the the second thing that I want to talk about, I'm going to put this on the table so you can be thinking about it, Paul. I don't know if you're going to answer the what the law says question. Um, there's there's so much um, legislative noise, right? And what I mean by that is there are so many things that people want the legislature to be responding to, and there are so many topics that they could be covering. Um, and so it might be, I think it'd be interesting to sort of hear from your experience, like what makes something rise to the top, right? What gets something to get the attention so that it ultimately ends up um, actually becoming a bill and then ultimately um, becoming a law. But before we get to that, can somebody please tell us what this new law in New Jersey actually says, what it requires, um, and what the repercussions are um, if somebody doesn't get the permission that they're now required to get? Okay, so in order to perform one of these exams now, a physician's required to get an informed written consent um, and the bill out or the, or the law now um, outlines specific requirements on the, the consent form that uh, Kate and her classmates helped bring to our attention. Um, and there is an exception for um, if it's medically necessary, if someone's urgently needs care, you don't want to have them stop and try and get a consent form. That was a bit of a concern for some people when we were going through the committee process. Some people reached out about amending that because they had concerns that um, something would come up and they wouldn't be able to get the care that they need. But yeah, we thought the bill was fine as it was written. And so there's also and what, another- And what happens if you don't get the proper permission? Um, so then it goes through the, the ethics requirements. And there's also another amendment from Kate and her classmates that if there is a medically necessary exam, then they have to inform the patient afterwards, which is kind of an oversight on our end, not having that in there. Um, Assemblyman Moriarty has a consumer affairs background, so he's kind of a consumer advocate. So for him, I think it's the, the kind of expertise gap, making sure that consumers are- able to make decisions over their own care and they're included as equal members in the decision-making process. So I think making sure they have all the information they can is definitely necessary. And then what about the, the second question that I was asking, right? So, you know, how, how does, how does, how do we get to a place where there's an issue that's been sort of floating around or that somebody's interested in? Cause I can imagine that there are lots of people who have thoughts about what new laws there should be. Um, and so how do you sift through that noise and then ultimately get to a place where we're actually making law? Um, so I can only speak to with Assemblyman Moriarty. Um, I know he's got that consumer affairs background. So anything where there's kind of a, a power imbalance or people are kind of being mistreated, that always kind of grabs his attention. Um, so if I hear from any anybody who reaches out to our office or um, a lot of times we'll see articles in the news about things that just don't sit right. Um, and so we'll share them back and forth and see if there's anything we can do to kind of pursue legislation. I like, I like two things about that. I like the idea of sort of like proactively looking at what's going on in the world, right? <laughs> um, and saying, here's this, you know, practice and it's, it's problematic or, and, and we can fix it, right? There's a way for us to fix it. Um, and I also like, and I think a lot of us know this sort of intuitively, but don't necessarily um, say it explicitly, you know, but people in the legislature have their pet issues and, and their, their pet projects, right? And so they're, they're always going to be interested in when you can bring something like that to the table. Because there are many issues that are kind of outside our special specialty areas and you try to defer to people who know those areas better. So like normally we don't really do medical bills, but this is one where um, the consent requirement, it just felt kind of too urgent to leave to other people who haven't been addressing it. So I want to, I want to um, uh, start wrapping up. And, and I think that the way that I want to wrap up is by asking each of you um, to share, you know, one or one or two lessons 
um, from this particular experience, whether it's getting this bill passed or testifying from the legislature or, um, um, you know, working with medical providers, right? All those things, you know, what, what is a lesson or two lessons, um, that you would take from this experience that you think is going to be, um, something that's useful to you as you move forward in, in, well, for Kate and Paul, as you move forward in your career out in the world, um, as lawyers, and then for, for Ruthann, as you think about this course and continuing to teach it, you know, are there things that you're going to draw from this particular experience, which I think has been wildly successful, I would say, <laughs> right? It's pretty great. Um, but I always want to sort of know, you know, what, 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 what are you taking forward from this that's going to help you in your career or in the next big issue that you want to take on? And whoever wants to start should, should start. Yeah, I guess I can start. Um, so for me, there are many groups who reached out with kind of suggested changes. And for me, I kind of got settled on how our language was at the one point. Um, so I was kind of resistant to those changes. And maybe I should have been more understanding that people, hey, they're not necessarily trying to undermine your bill, but at the same time, kind of keeping the perspective of people who they had previously met with. Um, so there was a, we met with um, the New Jersey Coalition Against Sexual Assault, representing the sexual assault survivors who definitely have concerns with these kind of practices. Um, and they had us get rid of language that would have allowed for patient representatives because they believe that um, if you can't provide consent, then someone should be able to consent on your behalf, which, you know, you never know somebody else's experience. Maybe they're a survivor and just didn't tell their representative and that could be traumatic for them. Um, so then other groups reached out trying to get that language back in and we kind of just dug in where I didn't want to cave on that. But, you know, at the end of the day, maybe they're just trying to help the bill. So something for me to, to learn and grow from. Thank you. Kate? Yeah, um, I think I have two big takeaways from the, um, you know, this, this type of work and, and um, you know, my work in Professor Robbins class. Um, and I think a lot of folks go into law school with like this idea of constitutional litigation and like, I want to work on these big, sexy, like comma cases. And that was, you know, one of the things that I kind of thought about, um, you know, going into law school, like, oh yeah, high impact, like big, sexy, like uh, Roe v. Wade kind of stuff. And to, you know, some degree, I, I still do think about that. But, um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're kind of in that boat, I would just encourage folks to think about what do those big, sexy con law cases generally implicate, like frequently. They're most often, you know, debating the merits of these sort of statutes. Um, not always, but very frequently. So if you want to not reach those, you know, con law cases that can sometimes have these like really debilitating effects on people's lives, a, a good way to approach that is create good, effective legislation, start locally. Um, and, you know, this sort of lawyering, it's, it's effective, like go that route. Um, so that's my first takeaway. And also, you know, this is a kind of an access to justice issue um, for me, like, yes, lawyers, the training that we get in law school, it's, um, it's great. Like we're trained to do this sort of like statutory parsing. Um, and like, I knew what sort of stuff I wanted to read and look for specifically when I was suggesting uh, amendments to Paul. Sorry, Paul. Like I thought the language in your bill was dope, but um, you know, this is the sort of stuff that we can also teach to folks in the community. Um, and so that they can do um, advocating for themselves and that's a great 
tool for um, community lawyering um, and movement lawyering. Um, and if, if you're interested in that sort of work, this is a, a good tool for that too. So awesome. Thank you. Ruthann? So what I take away from it is the importance of really teaching in law school more than the litigation um, and transactional roots, and that there really needs to be more work done with teaching law students about legislation and, of course, regulation, you know, the administrative side of it, all of the agencies. Um, I don't think we do enough of it. And um, I also, I'm walking away with, I mean, I'm learning on the job too. I didn't know that much until students started pushing me towards doing it. And so every time I meet with a legislator, I learn something new. And the New Jersey legislature is a part-time legislature. These people have jobs besides being legislators. I have so much respect for how much work and devotion they put into what the state calls a part-time job and how open they are to hearing from law students and how willing they are to teach. Um, so it's a lot of fun, but I think a big, huge takeaway is we're really lucky in New Jersey that we have that kind of open legislature and how important it is to be electing people into the legislature who will keep it that way, keep it open to um, having the citizenry approach it and having law students approach and being willing to teach. I love that. And, and, and being willing to, to, I mean, Paul was sort of making this point about, you know, people bringing in amendments, um, being willing to hear these other voices and these community voices and people who have different types of expertise, um, and also respecting the idea that expertise is not just sort of um, education-based knowledge, right? That expertise can be, this is my life experience, these are the people I've worked with, um, that can be really, really valuable as well. Um, thank you all. This was just, you know, I, I um, you know, I've said this to uh, Ruth Ann um, and Kate personally, I probably haven't said this um, to you um, out loud, Paul, but this, you know, this is the kind of work that just makes me so thrilled um, to be at a law school and in particular to be um, at a state law school, because I feel like one of the, one of the reasons why we do have a special relationship with the legislature, um, besides the fact that lots of our grads end up there in various ways, um, is that we're, you know, the state university of New Jersey, right? And we care really deeply about this state and about, um, you know, um, the people who are making decisions about the lives of those of us who live um, in this state. So it's really exciting to have this um, wonderful example of how you can go basically from zero to 100 um, and have a really powerful impact on literally thousands and thousands of people's lives. So um, I'm really proud of you and I hope that you're all uh, really, really proud of yourselves because this is this is the kind of work that that I think makes um, um, some of the some, some of the uh, less fun days as a dean um, are, are made better from, from stories like this. So thank you all, one, for doing the work um, and two, for being willing to come on the podcast to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.